Hi, I'm Angie Brown and you are listening to the Being Luminary podcast. The podcast where I sit down with everyday but by no means ordinary thought leaders to talk about being luminary in life and in work. You're listening to Being Luminary, a series of conversations with education leaders, with public sector leaders, with charity leaders of being luminary in the field of diversity, equity and inclusion. And today I am really delighted to introduce Alison Peacock, our guest, who is going to talk to us about her approach to diversity, equity and inclusion, both herself and for the organisation that she currently works in. Alison, it's really nice to see you and I'm so glad that you are here having this conversation with us. Would you like to introduce yourself a bit more to people listening? Okay, well, thank you very much. I'm very, I'm very pleased to be here. So I've been a teacher all of my life. I'm also a mum to two daughters and wife to John. And I'm absolutely passionate about trying to find a way through to make life better for children. And then most latterly, I realised from the position of head teacher, there was only so much I could do in that role, whilst also trying to run a school and um, (laughs) work with the community and everything else. And so I moved from that job that I absolutely loved being head teacher to starting the Chartered College of Teaching, which is a new professional body for the profession, the teaching profession. Uh, It's completely voluntary for people to join. But the ambitions behind it are huge, which are all around enabling the teaching profession to be more confident about what it does so that we're less likely to constantly be looking over our shoulder and worrying about what someone else thinks of what we're doing. So all of this is about, in a sense, a liberation for the teaching profession, but not liberation to sit back and just let things wash over us, liberation that allows us to be really ambitious about how we are the best teachers we can be on behalf of our children. That feels like a worthwhile thing to be getting up in the morning to do. It does. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't realise that you. what you just said then was that you left your role and you decided to set up the Charter College, which makes it sound like that was an incredibly, oh, I just, you know, left the role and started the college. How Can you tell me a bit about how that, what kind of thinking went into that and, and, and how you ended up following that golden thread? Yeah, so what happened was, it's quite a complicated story really, but essentially when I became a head teacher, I was also involved in researching the school through, uh, with the University of Cambridge through projects called Learning Without Limits. And these, this was all about trying to see how could, how could I, as the head teacher going into a school that was in special measures, how could I take it on a journey of improvement that meant that we would provide wonderful opportunities for everybody associated with that school? And if, even when I went for the interview, the governor asked me where the school would be in three years' time. And I, <laughs> I said to them, given that it was in special measures and it had the worst results that you could get, um, you know, E-star, as it was back in the day. Uh, I said that under my leadership, this school um, would become a centre of excellence. And you can imagine, sort of looking back on it, they were probably laughing up their sleeve, really, as I was saying this. And I've never been a head teacher before. Mm. But we embarked on this journey, and then the, the school was researched. I was involved with researchers from Cambridge for up until 2012. So I started at that school in 2003. So for nine years... I was working with the researchers to document the story of what we'd done. And the school moved very rapidly, actually, from special measures to outstanding. And then that's that's a pretty 
that's a pretty useful story to start helping other people think, well, what might we do differently? So I started talking about an alternative improvement agenda that wasn't based on blaming people, wasn't based on labeling children, it wasn't based on uh, tracking performance. It was essentially based on on openness and questioning and inventiveness and, and so on. It was all about a highly inclusive way of thinking about teaching mm. and learning. So leaving the school like that, I was there for, well, I left um, in 2016 to start this job in 2017. I'd been there all that time from mm. 2003. Right. That was a huge wrench. And although the school had developed, become a teaching school, we had a big alliance of schools that we were working with. We weren't a multi-academy trust because mm-hmm. we decided not to do that. But um, a job became available. Uh, the government had decided to fund um, for a short period of time the establishment of this new professional body, the Chartered College. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, if I were to get that job, maybe I could start to work with people across the country and ultimately internationally in the same way that I'm trying to work as a head teacher to try and think about alternative ways of enabling success that isn't about limiting people it's not about labeling it's not about one against another so I decided to apply for it and then they appointed me (laughs) (laughs) I took that job up in January 2017 yeah, it was a big. It was a big step, though. And I'd, I'd been a secondary teacher, but I was a primary head. And so immediately, when I arrived in that role, I think there were a lot of people who kind of looked at me and thought, oh, "Well, what does she know? She's a woman, primary head teacher. How yeah. she can say anything of any relevance to me?" Mm. Um, so I've had, I've spent quite a bit of time trying to prove myself, I suppose. Mm. It's interesting because. I don't know that I see that dimension anymore because I now, you know, every, when I see you, I, I guess I see you in the now as opposed to a few years ago when the when the charter college was starting. But I do remember that narrative around, you know, worth and proving self. And I'm really interested in interested in that. Maybe we'll touch on that in a bit. But but what I'm taking from the story that you've just told about your work in headship in particular is that commitment to moving something forward that didn't on the face of it look like it was possible so what do you what are you talking about how are you going to move this school from special measures to to outstanding how is that even possible but so many people don't look at situations like that and think yeah I can I can move that I can do that that's that's um that's not the problem here so I'm wondering if there is any connection between that willingness that openness to go into a situation like that and say yeah I can move that forward and the connection that you feel for diversity, equity, inclusion work and kind of where that connection you feel comes from. I think there's I think there's a <laughs> I think there's a huge connection. <laughs> so um I have to say, just for the avoidance of doubt, at no point when I took on that job did I think, yeah, I can do that. I had no idea mm. how I was actually going to make this happen. Yeah. yeah. I had no idea. But I did know I was moved by the injustice. Yes. I was moved by the fact that here was a school where the teachers were cowed down, where the youngsters were not able to flourish, mm. where parents weren't listened to, and I just felt this is this this can't be right. Mm. So it's injustice that is is a key driver. And you know, thinking about 
my sort of origins around that and why why does that matter so much to me? I think it goes way back to when I was a little girl, my father uh, became a primary school teacher, but he didn't start off as a primary school teacher. He, um, when he met my mum, he um, was, was went to do national service. And when he came back, he um, trained to become a carpenter. Now, this was obviously a post-war situation. During the war, he had been evacuated to March in Cambridgeshire. And when he was evacuated, he was the youngest of a very large family in the East End of London. He was the youngest child. And when he went to March, he went to the local school and the family that he was evacuated to clearly um, valued education very highly. He then passed the 11 plus. But when he went back to Tottenham to his mum, she said, well, there's no way you're going to that school. You're not going to the grammar school. We can't afford the uniform. You're not going there. Mm-hmm. You're going to the other school. So he had his kind of the route that he was kind of potentially destined for suddenly stopped and changed because of finances. When he went to the school that wasn't the grammar school, he didn't have the same opportunities. So he hadn't done his O-levels and so on. And then subsequently, as I said, you know, he met my mother, he became a carpenter. And then she had she was training to teach. And between the two of them, they decided that he should go to night school and that she would support him while he trained to teach. So as we were young children, me and my sister, and we used to travel in um, into London to my grandmother who looked after us while my dad went off to teacher training and my mum was working. So that whole kind of sense of opportunities either being given to you or being taken away before they've even started, mm. I think it runs really deep for me. And I abs- came to a realisation about this when when my dad died, because you know what, when when somebody in your family dies and you you know, the family gathers around, perhaps not so much now because we can't, but, you know, in normal times, mm. you, t- you share stories of, of the person that you love. Mm. And I just, we were kind of laughing to ourselves, talking about, he always used to talk about when he was evacuated and what it was like and everything. And then it really hit me, really hit me. And I was at university at the time. And I just remember thinking, this is why I care so much about injustice, because because it's been, it's kind of been present and my dad's overcome this. Not that he ever used to talk about that. He used to talk about the fact that he got wonderful food when he went to Marsh. He wasn't, <laughs> but it was that whole experience that changed his life several times and overcoming that adversity, if you like. Um, and my mum, my having the vision, if you like, to sort of see well, what might be possible and how much happier he would be. And uh, yeah, so that, that was quite mm-hmm. fun for me. Yeah. What a fascinating story. I love this image of you going into London and then being at your grandparents and both of your parents kind of engaging in the education in some way. What yeah. did they, just out of interest, what, what kinds of schools did, did your parents work in? So my dad was, uh, he was the kind of primary school teacher that I think um, the kind of legends are made of, you know. He was the, yeah. he worked in a an, an inner sort of... Uh, an urban area. It wasn't a city. He worked in an urban area, but he worked with the, what were called the juniors at the time. And he would do things with them like build model aircraft and um, take them out and experience, um, you know, camping outside and doing all kinds of things that, and, and lots of, and lots of stuff around literature. Mm-hmm. So really things like stick of the dump and so on. So, and he's, I think because his experience himself had been one of, 
almost kind of being written off and not having an opportunity. He was always very keen to be there for the youngsters. And, and I think particularly some of the lads who might otherwise have not necessarily enjoyed school. Yeah. I like to think that they loved being in his classroom. And, he, you know, for me, he was a, a great role model, I suppose. And then it's interesting, my mother is, or she's not now, she's retired, but she became a, a head teacher of a primary school. And she was far more... She was far more about the whole kind of leadership and management thing. My dad never wanted to be a leader. He always wanted to be with the children. Mm -hmm. He always wanted to, there was a degree of him understanding um, disadvantage and trying to do something about that. That that I think, again, is very helpful. It's, It's a huge influence on you when you're growing up. If you've got someone with you that believes that things can change. Absolutely. It's so interesting how some of those things we don't make explicit in our understanding of our childhoods, but they are there running through everything. It's like a gesture, isn't it, to the world that is a belief in people and a belief that people people don't get written off. Mm. And I don't know if I could ever articulate it, but I really recognise what you're saying um, Mm. in my own upbringing. So when you were at school, when you were a young person, did you ever experience the being written off or being encouraged or not to do things did you ever experience the insider outsider dynamic in any regard yeah it's interesting so I I didn't like school mm-hmm. um in fact I, I I quite often um entertain our youngest daughter Liz with stories of what I was like when I was a teenager she thinks it's hysterically funny that that I just I just didn't I just never felt I fitted in really I just never really I wasn't one of the cool kids mm-hmm. um interestingly Liz our daughter is one of the cool kids I'm not sure it's necessarily the best place to be but never mind um so I, I wasn't one of the cool kids and um I just I didn't like games and anything physical and you know I was I was I was able to to do well, if you like. So I was always in the sort of top three in the class. Mm. But it, I always felt like we were being kind of herded about. Primary school and secondary or just or Yeah, well, definitely yeah. secondary. Primary school, um, primary school, yeah, yeah, not so much, but certainly secondary school. Um, because the primary school I went to was a very small school. And when I went to secondary school, it was a huge shock. Mm. Others who'd been to big primary schools who then transferred to the secondary school, they knew lots of people. I didn't know anybody. Um, And they were kind of used to things like, I mean, I've never set a test ever in my life. And they were used to all that kind of stuff. I didn't know what revision was. I didn't even know, you know, so at the end, I remember at the end of the first year and when I was, um, would have been in year seven, we had um, what would have been end of term exams. I didn't know what they were. I just sort of thought, oh, well, don't you just sort of turn up and, try your best I didn't know I, I so yeah. there was kind of an element of of feeling a little bit outside and sort of a bit naive I wasn't really bullied there were a couple of occasions where there were some people who were nasty to me and I just kind of tried to stay out of their way hmm. but I didn't I never really I didn't enjoy it and I didn't enjoy well I, I only enjoyed university when it got to the point where actually my fourth year when I moved to Warwick University I was training to teach and at that point I was with my now husband John Mm -hmm. and that was a blissful year that was like a honeymoon year that was wonderful I then I wasn't on my own I didn't feel on my own anymore so what does that 
what does that lend you that lens or that perspective on the world of being somebody that actually doesn't quite find their fit what does it lend you when it comes to thinking through diversity equity and inclusion matters well I think it is about understanding the importance of difference and and celebrating individuality and not assuming that everybody thinks in the same way you know you, you've got I guess if you're always part of the in crowd you would assume that everybody else thinks the same as you do maybe because you'd be in the majority so it's, it's I think it's really in terms of me becoming a teacher I was always right from the very first days I was always really keen to try to listen to the voices of the youngsters in my class I was always keen to understand their perspective or if they weren't able to understand something, why not? Or what could I do that would unlock something for them? So this notion of finding a way through, which is really central to the whole learning without limits work that we subsequently did, mm. is all about not what can you get the youngsters to do differently so they fit in with your model of what you need to do, but how do you, as the teacher, find the way through? How do you unlock? How do you enable someone to feel good about themselves so that they can start to do something that they wouldn't have otherwise done Mm. and that's been fundamental right the way through as a teacher but then as a head teacher I kind of characterize what's great teaching and I think what's wonderful about teaching is when somebody comes to you child or adult or parent or whatever and they say to you guess what and they start telling you about something and you kind of go well tell me tell me and they and you know that you have been part of enabling that to happen it's not because it's your success it's their success Mm. but you kind of listen to them and there's just the kind of yes that's fantastic that that's happened so someone has guess what and they volunteered and then they've been chosen or guess what I've managed to do this now or I've overcome that or someone's listened to me or I've got a job interview you know and I still get those kinds of things now so I got an email just a couple of weeks ago from a parent at the school where I used to be her teacher and she was saying to me guess what and she was talking about her daughter and her daughter had started she joined a, a day nursery and she was going to work at the day nursery and this was something that she was really proud of and her, her daughter had gone through all kinds of difficulties when she was at school and it was just wonderful that mum wanted to share that with me mm. and you know it's that kind of um I think that's what at its best that's what education does it opens up opportunities. And what you're describing is also a really kind of holistic way of viewing human beings. So everything about them is included, not just, as you say, the bit that we need to conform. We need you to conform in this way. And that's the bit that we'll include. It's like everything is included. But that's a really quite still, it feels like ambitious and quite revolutionary way of working. It works though, doesn't it? It it works. And yet we don't all do it. So what is it that you think stands in the way of people feeling able to work in that in that kind of holistic way with people? I think there are lots of things that get in the way. I think people are frightened to do something different. They're frightened to step outside of what the, the, the norms are seen to be. They're frightened to be seen to be so-called sort of privileging somebody over somebody else. They think that somehow that's not fair you know why why is it that they get this and they don't all that kind of stuff I think there is something about professional courage that I'm talking about which is you know we mentioned it earlier it's driven from that sense of injustice because if someone's being overlooked or they're not able to participate or they're being marginalized 
and you're the teacher and you actually have an awful lot of authority and power within the situation that you're given as a teacher and you let that happen and you don't do anything about it you're complicit aren't you mm-hmm. yeah I think so. and it's that sort of sense of and it's and all of this is difficult I think that's the other thing so one of the things that the the researchers were sort of saying to me when we were writing um creating learning without limits which was the book of the story of the school and that journey of improvement they were saying what you're doing a lot of the time is swimming against the tide mm. and that's much harder than just accepting and just going with what everybody else wants because mm. if you're going to swim against the tide you have to be prepared to do things differently and I think the other thing I should say at this point in case people are thinking oh well that's all right because she's just a brave woman I'm not brave at all so I don't like conflict I don't like a lack of harmony I hate it if I think people don't like me I you know I will always try what it what it does mean though is that you have to work much much harder to swim against the tide because you have to find a way around everything you have to take people with you rather than just march away through it this is the way I do it anyway and then people kind of come to something almost as if it was their own idea in the first place and they say well of course this is the way you would do things and you say yes I like um I like what you just said about bravery because I think people I talk to people who think that they or often they say things like I know I just need to be braver as though there's some ease in jumping from feeling like you're not brave to just being braver and and often I think as you've just as you just articulated it's more that we can all find ways of creating our own bravery. It might not look like the same thing as the next person. And sometimes it is in the small and the meandering and the long-winded kind of gestures that we have to take that we find real bravery and that we continue to flex that muscle because it is it's persistence, isn't it? It's tenacity in that, in that approach. It totally is. And I think the fact that, you know, because it's driven by... A kind of moral purpose it it's you know I'm prepared to be uncomfortable on behalf of others because I can see that any discomfort that I'm experiencing is not as bad as what as what mm. they may be going through um and so uh, you know an example of this m- m- would be just last summer when we had the whole clear injustice around the way that the exam results were being allocated related to a so-called mutant algorithm but actually they knew exactly what they were doing and they set up that process yeah and then we had some youngsters who spoke out very powerfully and then a whole momentum started to build around that and I remember doing a piece to camera where I was just furious about it really and I was quite happy that people like the prime minister would see this yeah um because it just felt like well hang on a minute why on earth should we put up with this you know on behalf of our children just to get yourself sorted out I remember kind of almost wagging my finger at Boris Johnson like just sort yourself out we can't do this that I didn't feel that I was being courageous doing that I just felt moved to say this feels unfair mm-hmm. we have to and I and at that point um having you know worked with the college for a number of years I was beginning to I think gain some credibility and so that means that your voice is then far more likely to be listened to and that's where you have much more responsibility Mm. which strikes me to do the right thing or to do what feels like it's the right thing at the time who knows what the right thing is but you can try can't you 
Well, yeah, and you can be moved by the thing that is the the sentiment that is moving you in the moment, yeah. and usually, and often, that's a that's a great guide. So, you've talked about learning without limits, and that sense of wanting to holistically work with with children to look at to look at education differently. Alison, can you tell me how that became a desire to work? almost holistically with the with the profession and to look at teachers through a similar lens because it strikes me that a lot of the work you're doing with the chartered colleges around that holistic picture of what the profession is how did you get from there to here (laughs) so uh, I started doing a lot of work at the school people would come and visit they would the children would talk about their work they would talk to a whole room full of adults about what they were learning and they would speak incredibly com- you know confidently and this was because they were part of this whole culture of opportunity and of being listened to and being valued and the same was true of the teachers there and I um, I was invited by government to be part of a, um, a group looking at removing national curriculum levels related to assessment. This was because in our school, we hadn't talked to the children we, about, you know, if you do this, you'll be a 3B. I mean, it was just a nonsense. And so we didn't use any of that language at all. We talked about, well, actually, we asked the children to talk about their work and then we would coach them and enable them to think about what were the things that they would need to do next? How could they challenge themselves next? Their parents would be present. You know, those kinds of conversations were hugely empowering and the teachers were part of those conversations. But I was there as a head teacher as well. So that whole kind of sense of why aren't we listening to the children? I mean, these were primary age children who were incredibly aware of where they needed to develop further strengths, where there were areas that they felt they weren't yet good enough, but there was more that they could do. You know, provide the right environment and people will go with you along those kinds of lines and it's it's such miles away from the kind of environment that says right you come in here sit down I'm going to tell your mum and dad all the things that you need to improve on I mean it's just miles and miles away and then you just need to listen and then implication being take him home and tell him reinforce this at home will you and if he doesn't do what you you tell him to do perhaps he doesn't need to be on the playstation or whatever it might be it's a completely different way of looking at the whole situation now, once we started working, looking around at, at assessment, people were saying to me, but we just don't kind of get it. If you can't, we can't measure them. And if you can't track their performance every six weeks, how do you know you're actually making any progress in this school? And I'd be like, well, because look where they were in September. Look where they are now. Isn't that progress? Can't you see it in front of your eyes? Look in their books. Can't you see it? <laughs> yeah, but we need, to be, we need to be able to prove it. And so it, what, what became really clear to me was that there was such a lack of confidence across the profession and there was a sense that unless a test arrived wrapped in plastic written by somebody else delivered in exam conditions that nothing that you got from a child could possibly tell you anything about their progress because you didn't know you were just the teacher but this test was going to tell you everything you needed to know it's unbelievable isn't it yeah I mean, it is unbelievable, yeah. but it was, it's also tied, though, to... So I'm waving my finger at you now. So it's terrible. I quite like it. I feel quite talked to. <laughs> <laughs> but it's because I'm passionate about this. But it's all tied to the two, this deeply rooted way of being that we particularly experience, I think, in this country, which is about ranking, about knowing your place, about class, yeah. It's about an expectation that you mustn't get above yourself. Yeah. 
you know, that, that kind yeah. of phraseology, where on earth does that come from if it's not from a class system? Yeah. So, you know, who do you think you are? That's another phrase. Mm. Who do you think you are? I.e., how dare you tell me you learned this last year with Mrs. Jones? You're going to do this with me now and we're going to go right back to the beginning. How dare you tell me you already know this because your dad's taught you this? Mm. You know, we're going to do this again. So that whole kind of keep you in your place, status. Oh, oh, uh, and, yeah. it, and it's so, it runs so deep. And of course, it massively impacts on the whole, you know, issues around equity, diversity, inclusion, mm-hmm. because it's there's an assumption underneath all of this that somewhere someone better than us has defined where we should be in mm-hmm. society and what our role is. And don't try and move out of it. Mm. It resonates so much for me. And it's just reminded me of when I was at primary school, I, I learned to read really quickly. So I think in that first year. I was a super reader and we had the Johnny Yellow Hat, Roger Red Hat, Billy Blue Hat books. And I loved them and I would whiz through them. And, you know, I went in after, I think I took 10 books home or something one Friday, came back in on Monday and said to my teacher that I'd finished all of the books and could have had the next level. And she said I was lying. And I didn't know what what to say. And she was adamant that I was just lying and I I was kind of told off and made to, I don't know, sit outside the heads I don't know I was told off and kind of told to go and sort of amend my story effectively and when I look back on it it is a, it is a small thing but it's a big thing in the life of a per, of a human being Huge. and the sense of I need to be really careful about who I tell when I've done things well and that's always been there for me I better not I don't want to look like I'm above myself I don't want to look like I'm you know, like, I don't want to look like I'm succeeding. <laughs> that would be a terrible thing, wouldn't it? If you haven't directly taught me it, then I yeah. need to look like I'm learning it from you in the right order at the right time, as you say. So I think that's re- something about the way that you've just put that and how how we, we as a profession then need to be so watchful of our reincarnating some of those ideas in the classroom. Of course we do. And, and it's it's everywhere. Mm. Uh, you know, the whole kind of assumptions around who are the ones that can sit the foundation course and who are the ones that get to do the highest. You know, there's all yeah. kinds of, when, when you start looking for them, there are all kinds of limits that are set. Mm. And, and my my concern and the whole kind of uh, ethic of learning without limits when we when we were writing those books was about, okay, it was within the primary context. But if you get it wrong in primary school, as a school, if you limit someone's um, own kind of aspirations, their capacity to think that they can be successful, and then you report that to their parents, and then their parents kind of don't want them to be let down, so they kind of diminish their expectations mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And before you know it, you've kind of you've set an environment up which is one that's destined to be self-defeating, mm-hmm. and it's not what anybody intends to do. I think this is why. Because I'm, I'm, I'm always an optimist, so my sense would be schools are never deliberately trying to stop people from being successful, but there are things that get in the way mm. that means that they're almost like, well, I'm playing at being the teacher, so therefore I'm the one that needs to be in charge, so I'm the one that needs to change the book. I'm the one that needs to mark it down in my reading record, and here's Angela, and she's read 10 books, and that doesn't fit with my model of what happens yeah. with young children, so it can't work. And I think the way that we get beyond this is we need our our profession to be open-minded and inquiring and ready to accept that a lot of the time the children that we teach are capable of far more Mm. than we offer them 
They're capable of so much more challenge. Mm-hmm. And so within the school, we would talk, and Mary Myers has picked up this, this whole piece of work brilliantly. The whole idea of children challenging themselves. And they would say, I just love to challenge myself. I want to try the next thing and the next thing. And children absolutely are hugely motivated by that. Mm-hmm. If they feel like you've said to them, sorry, you're in the green group and the green group are doing this, that's all the green group will ever do. And they yeah. can look across at the blue group and think, well, when's the day I get to do that? And the chances are they'll never get to do it because there aren't enough chairs around that, ta- that table. Yeah. So there's so I'm much. That, yeah. And then there's all the kind of bias that comes in, which is, you don't look like me. Your family home doesn't sound like the family home that I grew up in. So therefore, does that mean it's a dysfunctional home? Maybe you don't do things in the same way. And also, look, your hair doesn't look like my hair. So I want yours you to be tamed and looks much more like me. And you're wanting to move around on the carpet the whole time. And actually, I want you to sit still because good children sit still. And there's all that so much there that if you're, if you're not aware of it, impacts dramatically on the youngsters in your classroom so that awareness that you had in your in your school that that people were obviously seeing when they were coming to the school that you've taken into the charter college teaching how does that impact on the work that you're doing with teachers I mean how does that influence the I guess the mission of the charter college so what we're doing at the moment is really trying to see what are the kind of barriers that might exist that because you know, here I am, you know, Alison Peacock, damehood from the Queen, you know, white privileged woman. What are the kinds of things that just might be in the way that stop people from feeling that being part of the Charter College is for them? Yeah. So how do we make sure for us just at the very start, how do we make sure that teachers, when they even start thinking about whether or not they want to become teachers, see people like them? who are also teachers, who are successful and confident. So the work that Mindful Equity are doing to really encourage young teachers or new teachers into the profession who have come from more more diverse backgrounds, non-white teachers, working with Yolande and Aretha to sort of kind of think, oh, it's okay, there are people like me here. And we had had an event last year where they were speaking and they were saying, both of them were talking about when they first came into teaching, they didn't have anyone else in their family who'd ever become a teacher. And so those kinds of things become barriers. Whereas I did, when I started teaching, I had a really difficult first year. There were some great things that happened, but there were some really difficult things. But my mum, as I said to you earlier, was a head teacher. Mm. And um, when I came home one day and said, that's it, I'm leaving. I'm never going back. My dad was like, okay, love. <laughs> but my mum said, no way. <laughs> You're getting back there tomorrow. Don't be ridiculous. Yeah. And because she herself was was a, a primary head teacher at the time I was working in a tough secondary school but she had the credibility I guess in my eyes of not only being my mum but also being someone who had overcome the difficulties and so I kind of stuck at it whereas maybe if there hadn't been anybody at home that was saying it's okay you can do this I might have thought well it's not for me mm. and and if I was teaching yeah. a class where nobody looked like me in the class mm. that would have been even worse because when you felt well when I first started teaching in that school, it was tough. And there were some classes where the behavior, I just never got on top of the behavior. You know, it was almost like um, you'd kind of damp it down over here and then it would spring up over there and then you'd go over there and then it would back <laughs> over here again. Now, if if I, on top of just feeling like, gosh, this is so, this is impossible. If I also thought, 
and they're looking at me thinking, and you don't fit in. Mm-hmm. That would make it so much that I could think that would make it so much worse. So from the Charter College point of view, it's how do we provide resources, provide speakers, provide examples on our website of the full diversity of colleagues joining the profession that mean that that people can say, there's someone I can speak to that will understand. Perhaps it's going to be all right. Look, this person now is a deputy head. Look, this person here is the CEO. Great. So it's about providing role models. It's about providing career pathways. It's about tapping some people on the shoulder and saying, you really ought to be a fellow. We really want you to be a fellow because when you become a fellow, people look at you and go, wow, that's great. That means maybe I could, maybe that's something I could do. And for me, that's, that's really important. And just recently, um, I've, um, Anne Palmer uh, runs um, Fig Tree International, and she asked me if I would provide some work shadowing for someone to come work shadow with me. And I said, well, yes, of course, but I mean, everything's virtual, but let's yeah. do it. And um, it's only been a couple of weeks, but I met the the person, uh, an amazing woman who's a secondary head teacher who is going to be work shadowing me. And and we were we had a meeting for two hours and she was telling me all about what she'd done in her school and how she'd previously been an HMI and now she'd gone to this school and she was going to lead it to being a great school. Mm-hmm. And I just remember sitting there listening to her thinking, what on earth can I possibly help you with? You are just so wonderful. <laughs> so I said that to her. I said, what can, what can I possibly do? Because you have achieved so much. And her view was, oh, but, oh, but that's amazing that you would say that. You know, so we have these perceptions of each yeah. other, don't we? Yeah, that, absolutely. That kind of stop us realizing that we're all we're all we've all got a frailty about us yes absolutely and I I really um appreciate what you're what you're talking about in terms of the direct you know the work that the college is uh, is doing to open up teaching for people who don't necessarily think that they have other people who look like them in the profession because some of it is just not being able to find them some of it is you know how do we even know who's out there doing these roles and I was lucky my parents were both teachers they're both black they're both teachers and so that was and that runs in my family but where when I trained to teach I taught in in all white schools and colleges and that was incredibly difficult and there was no network at the time of people who I could reach out to so I really hear that and you've said that you're working with you've done some work with mindful equity I'm interested to hear if there are any things that you think at the moment the Chartered College kind of needs to look at any blind spots, any any areas that you think, oh, this this really needs a bit of work. So, <laughs> our team, we've done well on on the gender front because we've got an all female senior leadership team. But um, if you look at the if you look at the faces on the website for the Chartered College, they're pretty much all white. Mm-hmm. So um, we have, you know, a number of staff who are European who are based in. Amsterdam and France and Greece and so on. So we've done we've done well with whole flexible working yeah. and all of those kind of things. But in terms of the diversity and the visual obvious diversity, as opposed to protected characteristics, where I think you know we are doing as well as we possibly can do. There's more that we need to do. Yeah. So I think probably people could look at us straight away and say, well, yeah, you're talking a good game, Peacock. But actually, you know, how do we how do we change that? So that's actively something we're working on, and. 
we're trying to understand again what the barriers might be to recruitment so that we don't sort of see it as someone else's problem it's our problem mm-hmm. we've got some roles that are advertised sort of this week so but I don't know when this is going to go out but maybe people need to look and see it would be great to be able to recruit people who are brilliant who are going to take this work forward yeah. similarly with the makeup of the council so um frustratingly um we've had people who've been elected to the council who have then replaced people whose term of office is finished so it's kind of like you know uh, it was great with Safi and Sadiq has just joined us and he's a wonderful advocate and and so on but you know then Wendy who was a member of the team before and so you know so it's, it's uh there's so much more that we can constantly be doing but I think we're looking at this as a really important issue within the college. So when we the events of last summer occurred with the death of George Floyd, we were all incredibly moved by what that meant for us, how we felt, and um, what 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 could we do. And so we began. We uh, every um, every other week we had an extended team meeting, and the team meeting was either to have someone to come and talk to us or we would have things that we were reading. We set up a a book club because quite often reading fiction is a way to understand and empathise and just get another kind of view of other people's lives, really, and just try to be quite open about the fact that there was so much more that we needed to do. Mm. And I feel as though, well, if I'm completely honest with you, when we first started the Chartered College back in January 2017, I look back on those days now and I think... (laughs) How did we even get? How did we even get beyond where we were? Because everything was so demanding all of the time, and I think now, uh, over the period of the pandemic, the team we've lent on each other because everybody's been suffering in the last year. Yeah, and I think we've lent on each other, and we've tried to know each other a lot better, and we've tried to really dig into what are the big issues that we are still not getting right internally? Because if we don't get our own house in order, how can we possibly try and help beyond Mm. our own organisation? There's so much to do, but I I think we, I hope we're on the journey. Mm. I think that's the most important bit, really. Yeah, the fact that you're on the journey is the most important bit, I always think. It's like, we're on the journey. And yeah. we always are, aren't we? As organisations, as humans, we're always kind of on it and wanting to reflect on it and the willingness to reflect on it, I think is really helpful for other organisations who are just thinking, we don't even know where to begin. We don't know what to do with this. Mm. Mm. So if you could um, offer a piece of reassurance, guidance, advice to leaders of organisations of schools or of trusts, people who are leading, some people are leading this work and they don't have particularly influential place they might say in the hierarchy of an organization but they are leading on diversity equity and inclusion nevertheless if you were to give them one piece of advice on you know moving this forward what would you say what what have you gleaned over the last couple of years of doing this work I would say it's not easy but it's far better to try and get knocked back than not to try at all And I do think if I if I'm if I'm really honest with you about my own kind of understanding of of the issues, I think 
pretty much everything I've talked about in this, in this interview has been about the needs for inclusion, but I haven't typically looked at that through the lens of race. Mm. The school where I was a head teacher was was quite diverse, but it wasn't. We we didn't have a kind of uh, there wasn't something there within the school that was making me think somehow we're not serving all these children in the way that we should. So I think probably my own understanding of of what the barriers might be has grown quite considerably in the last. 18 months I you know I'm, I'm much more aware and and why am I more aware because I've been prepared to listen mm. and there are times when that is uncomfortable there are times when I've joined webinars and things and it's not because I'm speaking but genuinely because I just want to listen and understand and try and hear and sometimes um the discourse is incredibly angry mm. and then you kind of I mean I was on something recently and they said and <laughs> I was like, oh no! And, like, and look at your professional associations. Look at your union. Look at the makeup of the people who lead these organisations. And are they anything other than white? No, they are not. And I was like, you oh, know, mm. I'm sitting here in the audience feeling like, ah, yeah. But uh, but part of the journey is about feeling uncomfortable, so you can do something about it. Mm. And the fact I'm telling you about it means that I've kind of taken that on board. <laughs> Absolutely. And so it's not that I didn't know. Anyway, it's yeah. more that that you. This is not. This is. This doesn't have to all be about being polite, you know, because some of the injustices and the marginalisation and the kind of the sort of political narrative of the day kind of just tries to sort of wash over the reality. And there's so much. Too often, there's so much prejudice included within it. I mean, I can just think of an example when we were hearing those those bulletins from the government on a daily basis about what was going on with the pandemic. And then we started to hear about the so-called vulnerable children and then the disadvantaged communities. And you kind of, you think, okay, what is this a shorthand for in your head? And there's so much there that is that implies feckless parenting, that implies some parents just don't care about their children's learning. And it's, you know, rather than looking at the real issues, which are related to poverty and poor housing and a lack of opportunity, it all gets kind of, yeah, you get those broad terms it's, just, it's, about, la- it's incredibly lazy journalism often yeah and it's about othering it's about yeah. them as opposed to us yeah. and and so I suppose that links directly with everything I've been saying about learning without limits but I think when we think about the this issue through the lens of race and color there's another degree of separation that can be there that that, that, that makes it that much worse and that story you told about going home and reading all those books you know, I suspect that there will have been unconsciously, potentially, maybe consciously in the teacher's mind, who on earth does she think she is? Mm-hmm. Even more, perhaps, than another child, not a child of colour, who would do the same thing. And and even if there wasn't, Alison, what I took away from it was that there was. And so what that then led to was, was then a, a relationship between myself as a black child and yeah. the school that yeah. had that in the back of its mind. Yeah. Do I have to act differently because I think they probably think that we don't read at home? Yeah. Or I think that she probably, and it might not have been her intention, but we have to take such care as educators to make sure that all of our intentions are not just well-meaning, but land in ways that are... Well, completely. And also heritage languages. This is another huge issue. So for years, if a child came into your school and 
they were speaking their heritage, their first language, that was understood as a deficit. Mm. It wasn't, we, should, we didn't look at them and say, well, fantastic, you're going to be multilingual. And we know yeah. that multilingual learners are so much more capable because they have the capacity to have that cognitive diversity. We didn't look at it in that way at all. We just saw it as a deficit. They're not speaking English. Yeah. And then we, would, we were asked to record who were our English as a second language learners and so on. Not because we, but because it was a deficit and it was an excuse. Mm. Yeah. All of that, it's appalling when you, when you stop and think about it, actually. It's interesting, actually. I was talking. I was thinking about my son. My son is. He speaks German. His father's German, so he could be one. But I don't think that that heritage language would be looked at with such disdain <laughs> as other heritage languages. So he speaks English and German at home, and now he's trilingual. He speaks Danish as well, and I think that that would only ever, because they're all kind of European languages, would be seen as a as an as an enhancement to the fact that he speaks English as opposed to. The deficit of speaking, I don't know, Bengali and Mandarin. I mean, as if. Yeah, I know. So there's I'm... also the hierarchy, isn't it? Constantly. There's so much to do. There's so much to do. Yeah. 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 Alison, thank you so much for this conversation. I've, I've really enjoyed it because I think for me, the heart of diversity, equity and inclusion work is how human beings treat each other and how present we are to the realities of the lives of other human beings. It's really, really human work for me. So it's always such a joy to talk to people who are able to connect and make really clear connections between themselves and the moment that they realised they were in relation to others and had a role to play in how others flourished. (laughs) So thank you so much for sharing a piece of your journey with us and your story. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. And I will be watching out for those jobs and circulating them within my networks as well, for sure. Jolly good. Well done. (laughs) Excellent. Thanks, Alison. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Being Luminary podcast. I would love to hear your thoughts on the podcast, so please do leave us a review. Each month, I will be picking one of our reviewers to get a free laser coaching session as a thank you. And remember, if you know a luminary or an everyday thought leader who would benefit from listening to this podcast or who would love to be featured on the cast, then please do share it with them. This episode was presented by me, Angie Brown. Original music is by Martin Ostwick. The series is edited by Big Tent Media and produced by Emily Crosby Media.